0: Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Diadora, a brand made legendary by Bjorn Borg. Currently worn by world number 26, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, world number 27, Jan Leonard Struff, and world number 44, Martina Trebizond. See them at Diodora.com. Use my code approved in all caps at HollabirdSports.com for 15% off of all diodora Performance Tennis Shoes. We have a timely and special show for you today. In 1987, Amos Mansdorf got to 18 in the world. He is the highest ranked player in Israel's history. And he joined me from his home in Tel Aviv, where since the early hours on October 7th, after a coordinated attack on Israeli soil by the Palestinian Islamist militant group Hamas, his country has declared war. Now, hang on. You're in Tel Aviv?
1: In Tel Aviv, yes.
0: And it's 8 o'clock there?
1: 8 o'clock in the evening.
0: And I heard that there were sirens not that long ago, an hour or two ago. Is that true?
1: Yes, I can send you a video. I was just on a tennis court and uh, with some kids. I'm coaching at a place uh, actually not far from Tel Aviv in Anana. And the sirens went on, and uh, I can send you later the the video, so you can see what it sounds like how the, all the kids living tennis courts running to uh, what is supposed to be the protected area.
0: That's very sobering. Did you hear missiles? Did you hear anything?
1: We had, you know, I, I was born here in 1965, so you know, I went through the Six Days War. I remember very well Yom Kippur War, which was much for me as a kid. And then, uh, three years, we heard many explosions, you know, in 1991. When the Gulf War uh, started, the first Gulf War started, it was uh, much bigger missiles, much scarier. And uh, I was actually, when the attack on Iraq started, I was at the Australian Open in January, and I was just about to go on court, and I went on court. I can't remember who who I played, but I played terrible, and I lost, and then I had to fly. uh, I flew immediately home, and uh, as I landed, uh, just a couple of hours later, there was a huge missile that was a close call. That was a very big missile and explosion was there. And now we, we hear those explosions, as minor explosions. And unfortunately, I have to say that we're used to that. You know, we, we kind of got used to that. We trust the Iron Dome. The Iron Dome is uh, is uh, doing a great job in protecting uh, uh, Israel from most uh, polls in civilian areas. And it's not 100% uh, safe. You know, it can, missiles can get through, especially on close range when they shoot a lot, but uh, it does a really good job. And all the time when we have the sirens, we normally hear the explosions uh, uh, quite near where the Iron Dome uh, shoots uh, the, or the Patriot uh, shoot uh, shoots down the, the missiles coming from uh, Gaza Strip or from the north. But it's uh, not a nice feeling, especially for the kids. For our listeners,
0: it is... 10 a.m. in Los Angeles. It is 8 p.m. in Tel Aviv as war has erupted since uh October 7th. The gentleman you hear, former world number 18, 1987, he was 18 in the world, the highest ranked Israeli player in the history of the country carried the flag on his back for a lot of years through the 80s and the 90s that's Amos Mansdorf Uh, thank you for coming on the show thank you for having me Uh, as you know we do a five set format you know this is a this is a tough needle to thread you're in war and and we're not but I want to talk about what's happening I want to talk about tennis I want to talk I want to try to brighten things up and we'll talk about your career. The first set is the off the court
1: report. What was your
0: October 7th like?
1: Uh well, it was uh, strange because uh, we woke up I wake up early anyway every day and uh, about 6:30 we heard the first alarm which is unusual. You know, we had this in the past. Uh, we had it in the last few years, even let's say last time was about 2 years ago when they were shooting uh, some missile towards the center of Israel and all of a sudden you don't expect it, 6.30 in the morning, you hear the alarm, you know it's real because it's up and down, you know it's different when they just uh, test the alarm, they always let you know so you know something is happening and uh, so we heard it, we re- we go to the protected area in our house, I, take, I have a baby daughter, three years old almost, we wait. Then uh, about 20 minutes later, I take the baby girl. I say, okay, let's go buy some challah for Shabbat. You know, we go to the small uh, supermarket close by as we walk. And as we walk in, there's another, the second alarm. We go, uh, there's no place to to hide. So we we go to the, we, we know it's coming from the south. So we go. Uh, Behind the north wall, and uh, I protect her, I cover her, and we lean down. And then there's somebody else there saying to me, You know, there's already, it's not only missiles, there is some uh, infiltration also, some uh, terrorists infiltrated Israel. So you don't expect something serious because they've tried that many, many times. And then we go back home and we open the TV, and that's where a special news broadcast is coming on. And then we start hearing the news. And then it's coming and it's coming and we can't really realize what's happening for the first few hours. Only in the afternoon, I think, we start to understand how big the problem is, the catastrophe, the atrocities that are taking place and the total failure of the Southern Defense Line and the fence, this expensive fence they built that they thought uh, nobody can or nothing can get through. The whole system collapsed. And the amount of terrorists that infiltrated, which is unheard of in Israeli history, it's like a small army coming in. It's really, it's not terrorists. It's over a thousand people across the fence. And uh, so so then it was a total shock for the first few days. And then the bad news is starting to come in. And everybody has somebody that is missing, somebody that he knows, of, uh, close, uh, and it's really, really... Uh, disturbing and uh, then uh, but you know for me personally I can speak from my personal experience because I grew up in Israel and I always lived here and I went through the Yom Kippur War which also started in a very sudden manner uh, and I remember exactly where I was when that happened and and that was for me more scary because we really felt that the country is in danger this time we did not feel the country is in danger but the shock uh, of the the functioning of the, the Southern Defense Line really hit everybody. And uh, then, uh, you know, uh, we just sat listening for the first couple of days. Just we sat to watch TV, listen to the news. And then slowly, slowly, life is stronger than everything. And we are getting back to uh, normality. Already three, four days later, we started practicing tennis again. I coach uh, guys that are quite good players, and they, some of them play on the Challenger Tour and the Future Tour. Some of them are on the ITF Junior Tour. So they, these, these kids, they always want to practice. They always need to practice. So uh, three days later, by Tuesday, we started practicing. and But, you know, with not uh, much happiness, all the uh, plans were disturbed. And uh, then uh, uh, getting back to normality slowly. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu
0: has been a controversial figure in advance of what happened on October seventh. Is what happened derivative of the of the flux that's been happening in Israel? That Israel's enemies, Hamas, caught Israel at a uh, at a weakened moment, a distracted moment. Is that your opinion?
1: This is my opinion. I, I, I think it's taking a long time already in Israeli society. That a lot of people feel, and I'm—I have to say—I'm one of them. That the functioning of the country is not good, and I can give you my perspective from a tennis point of view. That a lot of the time you feel that the people that are not uh, deserving of the positions, getting the positions because of the connections, you—you—you're feeling that that your your professionalism or or your ability has nothing to do. With with the with the the appointments for certain positions that are important. Okay, this is tennis. Okay, no big deal. We don't have great tennis players now. Nobody in the top hundred. So what? You know, it doesn't mean anything. But when this kind of uh, uh, decision making and appointments are taking place in government offices, in the army, in in other uh, in, in in politics, in the local municipalities, uh, this is a problem. You know, and 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 I think this really uh, everybody sees now. That the uh, you know the Israeli reaction, the civil reaction was very, very quick, you know the society here we have great people in Israel, you know we have very successful people, very intelligent people, very capable people, and every every everybody got organized in a second and started doing the work, but the government offices are way behind, and everybody feels that that because of the politics and that they have thirty six government offices and they took every big office and they separated into small. Uh, offices for political reasons to give positions to people every every 36 ministers is, is unheard of you know and and if we at the israeli tennis association have 35 board members why not have 36 members you know it's a, it's a very small tennis association has 36 board members why, why does uh, 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 not have why not have 36 ministers in government and, and and i think that feeling from people that know israel and follow israel and know it from the outside they feel the change in the society, the change in values, the change in, in the, it doesn't matter, you know, you, you have uh, ministers that are uh, convicted, you know, uh, the, there are some ministers that was, were in jail and people are appointed, it doesn't matter, and the prime minister himself in, is under indictment. So so this lack of values, obviously, for many people, and I have to say I'm one among, among those people, I, I feel that that weaken the country in, in every aspect that, that there is. And I think now it's a, it's a wake up call for the people here. And I think the society, hopefully we, we will be able to make a change. We will need to make a change to survive in this area. This is a very tough area here.
0: Are people skeptical of, of, of what happened on October 7th that Netanyahu needed a war that it's inexplicable how this attack happened? Or is that a, uh, is that a conspiracy
1: theory? There's plenty plenty of those conspiracy theories. I don't think so. I I, I really don't think so. I think Netanyahu is all for maintaining the peace. And my evaluation from the first day was that it's going to take a long time and there's not going to be uh, any uh, uh, aggressive movements uh, on the side of Israel towards the Hezbollah or Hamas, simply because... Because that, when you think rationally about the situation, it doesn't make sense. Okay, of course, everybody is very hot blooded now. Everybody wants to attack. Everybody thinks we have to retaliate or take revenge. But when you think rationally, which is not, you know, a lot of people in the Middle East is it's not famous for for thinking rationally here. But but uh, and and our enemies are definitely are not rational people that are thinking in what in the Western terms are, are rational uh, uh thinking. Uh, But when you think rationally about this, then I think uh, a moderate response with the long-term planning and a long-term solution is the only thing we should do. And we will be able to force our way, change the situation, not only for the Israelis, but also for the Palestinian peoples and everybody who's living in this area. Because there are so many good things about Israel. You know, Israel has prospered in so many ways. in In high tech, in in uh, universities are good here. The education is good in medicine, in biotechnology, in in so many fields. Israel has done so well, and and it's we always felt it's a real democracy and a real Western country and at the edge of development. And now we think that everything is going backwards and there. I really hope that uh, we will pull out of this uh, crisis stronger with, with the horizon for our kids. You know, I'm I'm 58. I just turned 58. I have kids. My oldest son is 27. He's studying medicine overseas. I have another kid who is uh, 23. I have a daughter who is 18 who is about to join the army. And I have this uh, a baby girl now who is three years old. And I would like to all these kids to have a future here in Israel.
0: What is your opinion of the Israeli response with regards to Palestinian innocents being killed?
1: Well, you know, uh, in in those kind of conflicts, when you're fighting a a terror group that is inhabited within the civilian population, that's uh, inevitable. And uh, obviously Israel always tries to warn. Uh, You know, they always had this procedure, you know, that they tap, they drop like a dead bomb on the roof with nothing happening, just to let them know they're going to bomb the building. In many cases, they just let them tell them to evacuate. But Hamas has an interest to keep those areas inhabited, to keep those people that are hiding. Everybody, it's it's a known fact that they're hiding under hospitals, in the middle of civilian, everything. uh, uh, Gaza, the Gaza Strip is, uh, you know, there's a whole city underneath the Gaza Strip of concrete uh, caves and uh, tunnels. And and a lot of them are, are under hospitals and civilian centers. Uh, it's very sad. You know, no, nobody wants to see innocent civilians getting hurt. But we have to remember that uh, the brutality that took place in this attack w- was unheard of. You know, the, the mutilating of the bodies, you know, of dead people. And the, there's horror stories. And Israel doesn't use that uh, th- that propaganda. Israel shows this to the media on a private screening. They're not showing it. Everywhere, you know, they, they 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 are not using the Israel is losing the propaganda war. They are not showing uh, uh, Israelis carrying uh, bodies of their kids in hands, but there there they are a lot of Israeli dead kids this time. You know, the the uh, the atrocities that took place are, are really bad, and, it, and it's a pity for everybody. I'm I'm all all for peace. You know, I have to tell you, Craig. I'm I'm for me, this has to be there has to be peace. This is the only way the people could live here long term and prosper.
0: Uh, I often say more as it pertains to my tennis, (laughs) my lousy tennis. Um, Once you know you can't win, you can't lose. But in this case, (laughs) would it be fair to say that as it pertains to the Palestinians, that that attack was that sort of a situation where the Palestinians have been under under the thumb of Israel in a, an apartheid situation and the attack essentially was and is inev- was inevitable because once you know you can't win you can't lose
1: uh, I, I i totally disagree with that unfortunately and it's very unfortunate for the palestinians those terrorist organizations they're becoming like businesses the people they're they're making a living out of it they're living out of it they're getting aid money uh, from qatar or from other supporters and and they're making a living the, the the leaders of those palestinian groups they're not poor people you know uh, okay maybe the average hamas fighter is not a rich man but the leader the leadership of those organizations are living very luxurious lives A lot of them stay in Qatar, in in Dubai, and in uh, other capitals. And they travel and and they they collect the money. You know, uh, it's a known fact that Arafat, when he died, he he had a lot of money in his bank accounts. And it's like a business for them. The the interest of the people, and that's the problem uh, of that society, that uh, uh, they have never really taken care of their people in the proper manner. And the proper manner would be education. Uh, advanced education, not only religious education, but advanced and you see, you you know, there the, the are people in Israel, you know, the Israel, there's a lot of Israeli Arabs and they prosper, the Israeli Arabs, they prosper the ones, the, there's a lot of engineers a lot of doctors, you go to Israeli a, a, an Israeli hospital even nowadays, so much of the staff of doctors and nurses and workers in Israeli hospitals are from Israeli from the Israeli Arab community OK, uh, there is uh, in the building sector, you know, uh, they used to be just builders. OK, they, they used to be just the people laying the bricks. But now they are the engineers, they are the electricians, they they they, they are the big contractors for, for, for the moving the gravel or, or the big or, or cement. And, and they're doing very well and they prosper if they're willing to live in peace and they're willing to, to move forward, get the education, enjoy it. And, and it's a really a pity for me. That, that some people still think they can destroy. Uh, as an Israeli, for me, it's totally unacceptable. And they still, you know, in the uh, Palestinian charter, the Hamas charter still says that the country of Israel should not exist. The Iranians are saying that the country of Israel should not exist. We cannot accept it. And therefore, we have to be very strong and very determined. And for it's very unfortunate for the Palestinians, especially in the Gaza Strip, that uh, that this is their leadership because it could have been uh, another country if you take lebanon for example you are old enough to remember craig that lebanon was a great country before uh, so many uh, terrorist organizations decided this is the place uh, the best place for them to be lebanon was a great place and look at lebanon now it's not the same country beirut was the paris of the middle east so you know we something has to change in in their thoughts in their minds you know we thought that education the internet the widespread of knowledge will change that but obviously it hasn't or it hasn't changed it enough you know they use it to to build weapons and to learn how to make cyanide or or for terrorist attack or for cyber wars and this is very unfortunate but uh, we will not uh, we will not give up this is our country this is the jewish homeland we we are living here we, i'm uh, already a second generation here my parents were already born here my grandparents came from eastern europe in the uh, before the war in nineteen twenty already they were here they uh, were uh, settlers in the kibbutz and they built this land and they built this country. My parents were born and raised here and uh, we will not move you know we we will stay here and uh, uh they will not move us from here. We will win this thing and and we will change it for the better, not for the worse. Are you afraid uh, me not you know, I have to tell you personally, I'm not afraid. I think during Yom Kippur, it was much more scary because there was the a, a feeling of big armies coming from the north and from the south. I was still, I was only eight years old, but I remember the fear and I remember everybody. It's, it's not like this time. That time, everybody enlisted. All the men were gone in, in where I lived. So this time, you know, I, I, I'm not scared. It will be hard times. Now, it can take a long time. My, my personal prediction is a long time kind of a chess game in regards to the kidnapped people. Hamas is very clever in using uh, the tactics of releasing a hostage here, a hostage there, or using it for the all benefits, using their propaganda to put international pressure on Israel to slow down and not, you know, so this thinking could, could go, this situation could go for a long time now, you know, and uh, it will have... Bad effects, it's bad for Israel, it's bad for economics, it's bad for business. You know, we had a great, we had great tournament scheduled. Some players were already here. The first one was in the south, in Meitar, immense men's 25,000 in Meitar, which is very close. It's in the south, it's close to Beersheba, which is not far from the area that uh, of uh, what they call the, the oldest uh, kibbutzim and small towns that are around the Gaza Strip. It's very close to there. And uh, there was a women's uh, 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 25,000 supposed to be in Ranana, where I work, uh, also, and some of the players were already here. And uh, we managed to evacuate everybody very, very quickly because, you know, for foreign people that have never experienced that, it is quite scary. And I have to tell you, during the future, we had a future future event. Uh, I think it was two or three years ago. I think it was just during the COVID still, when we just started having tournaments, and they were Boba, and we had in Jerusalem, and they had sirens in Jerusalem, and and we managed to complete the tournament, and the players were very scared. I think it was the day of the quarterfinals or semifinals, and we managed to to play. But this time, you know, it was very clear from the first day that everybody has to go out, and and we lost. So we were supposed to have three three men's futures and three uh, women's futures, in the in in the south and in the north, very close to the border with Hezbollah in. Uh, a couple of them. And then we were supposed to have junior tournaments, uh, ITF level two and level three, grade, uh, two and grade three, which are uh, the strongest ITF junior tournaments that we have in Israel. And the finals of the Israeli junior championship were supposed to play on the seventh, uh, the matches. I have two players playing the finals in the under 14 and the under 16 and the boys. And they were both supposed to play. So now we never, we don't know where they're going to play that. So the the whole schedule, you know, for tennis, and as we are tennis lovers, it's a pity for, from from you know, because for Israelis also, it's not easy to travel out of here. It's more expensive. We are not in Europe, so you cannot just take a train and go to play tournaments. So those international tournaments are very helpful and very important. You need
0: your national tournaments.
1: Yes, get matches, get okay. points. You know, it's uh, important uh, for our players because it's tough for them to travel. They need that before they go in the army to decide, to determine who is going to be, Able to get a special uh, a statue in the army that he can uh, 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 practice and travel to tournaments. So uh, you know it's a it's a big blow for tennis after COVID. COVID was a big blow, and now it's again a big. And you know, of course, Tel Aviv was canceled. It was supposed to be a two fifty in Tel Aviv in November.
0: Let's move into the second set. This is the on the court report. This is where we talk about current tennis, the business of tennis, normally since we already began this. You said you were on the tennis court earlier today. So is it business as usual, or is it
1: business as sort of usual? Sort of you. It's sort of usual. It's actually uh, we just started at the beginning of the week to to invite more kids, and the courts were were open to uh, to public. Uh, for rentals, you know, people who are renting courts. It's, it's amazing. Whenever there's crisis, everybody plays tennis. During COVID, everybody plays tennis. Tennis, you, you know, you can't get a uh, tennis is not doing well, uh, well in you know in terms of ranked players, highly ranked players. But you can't in the Tel Aviv, on the center of Israel area, between seven and nine in the morning, and from five till 10, 10 p.m. It's tough to get a tennis court.
0: I gotta tell you, for a guy who's in a, a country that's in the middle of the biggest crisis in a lot of years. It feels like business as usual. You just keep it moving.
1: We we have to we have to and we have to keep whatever is is uh, available to operate. Also, from a business point of view, we have to operate it. You know, it's a it's people's job, people's livelihood. You know, restaurants are not working. You know, uh, they do takeaways. You know, people order food, but nobody's sitting in a restaurant and coffee shops. Those people are hurting. You know. Uh, people in the entertainment business, bars, it's gone. Nobody's going out. The majority of the people here, unfortunately, we are used to that. It's not the first time. Maybe it's a more severe blow than we're used to. But don't forget, we had a second Lebanon war in 2006. We had another big military operation in 2014. We had another quite big one two years ago. We always have something. We know that we cannot stop functioning. and And we can, we have to keep... Uh, what we can do in in the parts of the economy that are working, we have to keep trying, and we follow the educational system. You know, if schools are open, we normally would open for kids as well. If they go to school, they can play tennis.
0: So, what's your role in tennis now?
1: Now I am uh, coaching a uh, club that belongs to the municipality of Anana, which is a very nice city, uh, just uh, north of north uh, east of Tel Aviv, uh, very close to Tel Aviv. I was actually in business many years. You know, I, I stopped playing in nineteen ninety four, and then I was I was in the bi- business diamond business from nineteen ninety five till uh, two thousand twelve, and uh, some uh, working with Israeli Tennis Association for many years from two thousand thirteen till two thousand eighteen, and then uh, with some developing some players that I, maybe you know something. You know, Daniel Kukerman is our number one yes. player now. He, USC. Kukerman
0: he played for was
1: U- one at USC. Yeah, so I coached him uh, for many. I still coach him, by the way. You know, I still, uh, I still coach him when he's in Israel. I don't want to travel now, so that's why I took this position. I'm, I'm tired of traveling, and I coach another boy who's quite good. He's also on the Davis Cup team. Dan Leshem. Uh, he, was, he was up as 240 uh, a few years ago, and uh, some other uh, some other kids. A girl, Nicole Hirich, she plays for uh, Texas for Steve Denton. Then, then I was professional director for the Israel Tennis Federation for two and a half years until the, the end of 2021, 20, uh, and uh, now I'm just coaching a little bit. Have you had any
0: meaningful conversations with anyone in the tennis community about the situation?
1: Uh, I can't say that it's conversation, but I had a lot of messages from a lot of people uh, in the last few days, a lot of people in the tennis community, what's going on, are you guys okay, Is it, are you safe, are you safe? And yes, we're safe, and... Uh... Who's checked in with you? Did you know uh, Steve Kulovic? You remember a guy named Steve Kulovic? Kulovic. He he, yeah, he, he, checked he checked in? David Schneider. Those those guys were a little bit older than me. They both live in the U.S. They played Davis Cup for Israel. They were good players. I think I think Kulovic played for UCLA, and David Schneider was originally a South African and immigrated to the U.S., and, but he played Davis Cup for Israel. He uh, checked I, in. And uh, Gunter Bresnik. You know who Gunter Bresnik is? Team's old coach. No, but before he was Teams old coach, he was my coach, you <laughs> know. So he coached me uh, for a while and then he for me he after he coached me, he went to coach boys Becker. So Gunther checked with checked in with me and uh, uh, Marco Cudinelli, if you know him, a Swiss player that I Cudinelli. coached a little bit.
0: So the tennis community checked in. What happens next? D- did those tournaments get moved or they just get canceled? they were just cancelled.
1: They got cancelled now. Uh, I think. I think uh, we will see. We have to see when the time comes. You know, it also costs money uh, uh, to to host those tournaments. We anticipate we anticipate that the budgets are going to be different now. You know, this this war, this uh, situation is going to cost a lot of money. Uh, the, can- the country, there's less income in the country. The country is making less income from taxes. There's less activity. Business activity is, is off by more than 30% in the personal consumption, you know, from uh, from people. So uh, we don't worry about this now. You know, it's it's something that is, it, it, there are things that are much more important, but uh, still, you know, it's, it's a blow. But uh, there, there, we have to, when you set your priorities, you know, this is not... Uh, 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 you know the guys that are really good they can travel and play some tournaments especially except for the guys that serve you know they they are soldiers that have uh, good players that are uh, you know some of them uh, uh, ranked about 600 700 800 they cannot travel to tournaments now because because of the war the army won't let them travel not even to safe countries are you satisfied with the tennis
0: community's public response to what's happened
1: I don't expect people to uh, take sides. Unfortunately, eh, you pay a price when you take sides. And this is the reality, and I, I accept that. I appreciate the people that did. Some of the people, that had strong condemnations. I don't understand the people that support the Hamas uh, group, and some people did.
0: Who supported Hamas?
1: Uh, I, I don't want to mention names, but there were some. We should absolutely mention the name if that's what they did. I, I don't want to say, I, it just... They, 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 You know, normally it comes from ignorance, you know? A lot of the time, people don't do their own research now. There's, there's hardly any objective media, you know? Everything is uh, from a position. And, and uh, people, young people, they see everything online, you know, with their feeds, whatever they feed, and they think this is the truth. And so uh, some people are just uneducated and uh, that's it, you know? And uh, it's unfortunate, mainly for them, I think. Let's move into the third
0: set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. Amos, where does your tennis begin?
1: My parents were members at this uh, uh, place, which is like, it's not really a country club, mainly swimming pool on the beach in one of the hotels in Herzliya, and there was one tennis court there. Herzliya, that's a, is is that a beach resort near near Tel Aviv? It's just north of, it's a town just north of Tel Aviv, and it has, uh, you know, it's on the beach. And I was watching tennis all day, and uh, I wanted to play, but they wouldn't let me play. The coach said I was too young, and I was about five or six years old, and they wouldn't let me play. And then my second try was when I was nine. My mother saw so she knew that I wanted to uh, play tennis, and there was uh, the Tel Aviv University had a tennis club. Uh, there was a coach there, and he, they, they published that they're looking for talented kids. And uh, he took me there, and uh, I didn't get accepted. And then uh, uh, one year later, they opened uh, next to, very close to my parents' house in Ramat HaSharon. They opened the Israel Tennis Center. In, in
0: Ramat HaSharon, that's a
1: big yeah. tennis community. Yes, that's where they have the Israel Tennis Center. That's where they opened the first Israel Tennis Center.
0: That's where Gilad Bloom and you and all you guys got good there. Can you explain that?
1: Well, so, so you know, uh, uh, my mother took me there. I didn't want to go because I said, oh, look, mama, they say I'm not good. So why would I go again? I said, no. And then my sister went and she got accepted. I said, okay, I, I'm better than my sister. So I went there. Then I got accepted. It's a funny story, actually, because, uh, you know, this is the first lesson. It's the first time I come and play tennis, you know, and so, so they tested me. And they say, okay, you stand in the corner. In my corner, were only like three kids, and they, every the, the other corner was full of kids. I thought, okay, again, I'm I'm gone. But this time they select me. And they, we 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 had to come on Saturday for special practice. So I came in the special practice, and they taught us to play this half court game. First to ten on half court, and just play. Then they say, just play, okay? So we played, and then the coach comes and he says, who who, who is the champion in this court? I said, I won all my matches. And then he brings this small kid. He says. Okay, you play with him. So I play with the kid, which is younger than me. And I beat him easy. And the coach comes back. He said, who won? I said, I won. Ah, I said, you you beat him? I have to see you playing. And the the kid was Gilad. it's Gilad Bloom. Yeah. And then we just started playing there. June, July, August, we just played every day. We would play five, six hours every day. And we had a coach there.
0: Listen, you got to 18 in the world. I mean, that's incredible. How did you get good?
1: You got good right there? or Did you move to Florida? At that time, we had great conditions there. Why? Because, you know, we had a young, enthusiastic coach, and we had a group of kids. Because there were no tennis courts in Israel, there was a a selection process, which you don't have today. Today, if a kid wants to go to to play tennis, he goes to a club, he starts playing, and he will get accepted. But there, they had 12 courts. So many kids came, and they were shocked. You know, they opened this thing. They thought, you know, they're going to be maybe 50 kids. Hundreds of kids came with 12 courts. So they had to make a selection. So, so because of that selection, that you cannot make today anywhere in a tennis program, you will not any no, no club will not accept kids to their program, right? But there you come kids. I'm talking about beginners, and you select the best ones. So, so we had good groups of kids, and the talent was there. We, we had coaches, we had people. You know Dick Savitt. You know who Dick Savitt was?
0: For our listeners, Dick Savitt. He he won Wimbledon. He was prominent in the 50s and 60s. And he did, and he was he was Jewish, and he did a lot for uh, Jewish players, Israeli players. The Columbia University Tennis Center was called the Dick is Sa- is called the Dick Savitt Tennis Center.
1: Perhaps the the best Jewish uh, player ever. He was uh, helping me a lot since I was twelve. I met him when I was twelve, so he helped me a lot. And then uh, we had the coach in Israel. His name was Slomo Zorev. He coached Gilad and me. We had a nice group there. Slomo Zorev. Yes, He coached Gillard as well. And, and not Shlomo Glickstein. It's not... Uh, Shlomo Glickstein was already playing. He was older than us. There was an Australian coach there, Ron Steele, who also had some knowledge. You know, we, there was a South African man, Ian Fuhrman, who was the general manager of this tennis centre. He also played Wimbledon. You know, those those were tennis people, you know. And for that time, that was good enough. Those people knew what they were doing. They knew tennis. They knew the game. They knew the, the mentality. You, you know, it was like... Uh, a foreign place in the in the middle of Israel. What was
0: the moment where you where you was like, okay, well, I could be a pro player, I could be good,
1: right? Right away, right away. I when I was when I was uh, about twelve, and I you know, and I was watching or even before I played it. Maybe I think one year, and I was watching, and I said to the coach, I said to the Shlomo guy, the coach, I said Shlomo, you know, how, how are we gonna be, be playing? How, how can we play in Wimbledon? We don't have grass courts. How are we gonna be ready for Wimbledon? I was eleven. And and the, one of the parents, he heard it, and he started laughing. He said, you're never going to play Wimbledon. But but for me, it was clear from the start. I don't know why, but it was clear that I could be good. And the one thing I got to do from a very young age, we got to travel to tournaments. They, the Israel Tennis Center sent us to junior tournaments. I played the U.S. Nationals. Yeah. well and under. I I couldn't play Kalamazoo, you know, because it's uh, only for Americans. We played all the other ones. We played. I played in Fort Worth, Texas. I played in... Uh, North Carolina, uh, I played in some regional tournaments. So we played in 78 and 79. We played the whole summer in the U.S., you know. And then later, when I was 15, I started traveling to Europe. They had money. The Israel Tennis Center raised a lot of money in on, on those years, and, and they just sent us to tournaments. That must have been, that, that
0: must have been great. That, that must have been, like, the greatest days. Yes. Why do you keep saying, at that time, it was good enough? Why is it not good enough now? To have a vigorous program and to travel, why is
1: that not good enough? Well, because it's exactly what happened here with every aspect. And that's why the Hamas was able to, to bring 1,200 terrorists in, into Israel like that. Because the country, it doesn't mean what you know and what you don't know anymore. And we have people in the in most important positions in tennis in Israel. That have no idea about tennis, and that's it. And I would say, and I say it to their face. Oh, so you're saying that the
0: management is screwing everything up? They're incompetent. They're doing a lousy job. That's too bad.
1: The federation is run with 35 board members that they all have interest, and they all they don't care, and have no zero knowledge of tennis. You know, if, if people that are appointed to do, to be chairman or, or general manager. Have have uh, no knowledge in tennis or not coming from tennis backgrounds. This is going to be results. Unfortunate for both of the biggest organizations in Israel. Also, if it's the tennis federation or even the Israel Tennis Center. You know, even the, the, which is a much bigger organization.
0: It's interesting. It's it's a specious conversation when people think that outsiders can come into a sport, particularly a nuanced sport like tennis, and think that they can. Impacted in a meaningful way, they screw it up across the board, they screw it up in the media, they screw it up on their t v channels, they screw it up in marketing each and every time because they don't know what they're looking at
1: and, and and that's what I tell people. If I was a doctor, yes, if it was your health, and you were a doctor, and if you wanted to get an opinion or an operation, you would go to a professional doctor you know just listen to anybody because he build nice buildings it doesn't mean necessarily that he can run a tennis program or, you, or even understand what a tennis program needs so
0: how did you turn pro how did you cra- when did you crack the top 100 what was that like
1: i always say that when i started playing it was exactly the time with tennis the the styles of tennis started to change Because when we were kids, we were watching Beyond Box. We all played with more spin and more, uh, you know, uh, better baseline game. A little bit different footwork, a little bit more open stance, a little bit more rotation on the the ground strokes. And I remember the first time in that trip to the U.S. in 78, I saw the tournament in Stovermont. And I saw a lot of the players. I have to tell you, I was 12 years old. Maybe I was very cocky, but I was unimpressed. The guy who really impressed me was Jimmy Connors. Because his attitude, his movement on the court, his agility, his fighting spirit. But I saw a lot of good players that I was unimpressed with the ground strokes, or, or, or with the tennis. They didn't look that good for me. Uh, for me, you know, I, and I, I didn't think. And when I started playing, a lot of those guys they were maybe good on different styles. Maybe they played better grass court tennis, but the ground strokes from the back of the court they didn't really play that well. And I think that's why what made it a lot easier for me to beat these guys at the beginning of my career. Of course, you know some of them were great. You know, McEnroe. You know, you know, I could never beat him. But uh, I don't want to mention names. But there were guys that in the top thirty that were not that impressive for me from uh, from hitting the way they hit the ball. And then in the, in the mid-80s, the, the, the game started changing towards the big phones with more spin, with Jimmy Harris coming, Andres Gomez coming, you know, a lot of people more solid, all the Swedish guys, Willander and all those. But that's, I think the beginning, because of the beginning, was not that heavy. There were not that many players that are really good uh, baseline players and hitting. It was easier for me to rise up the ranking. And that's why I, already in uh, when I was 19, I was already top 100. I I even managed to, to make to make a, a semifinals, like an 80-small small event, you know, a 250-event equivalent, which be, with beating players that were not really good European clay courts like you have today. You know, I beat a German guy who was playing old-style Ralf Gehring, if you know this name, in which he played old German tennis style with slice four and slice back, and, you know, not really some servant volley, not really the big spinners that you have from Europe today. So, So the game, that helped me a lot. Uh, I managed to stay uh, in top hundred for many years, you know, from like eighty five to ninety four, s- till I till I retired. How did you get inside the
0: top twenty? Why did it all come together? Why were you so good that year, and why did you not continue?
1: I, I don't think I think I played better even after, you know, because I stayed in top fifty for many years, and from twenty to thirty, I don't remember exactly the number of weeks, but a lot I, I was ranked between twenty and thirty, which is not a big difference from eighteen. You know, sometimes that, that means just another one, one more good tournament. I finished two years in a row, 24 and 25, you know. I think I was unlucky in a way that in the, the beginning of my career, I always played well indoors and in the, in the winter and not so good in the summer. And at the end, I played better in the summer and not so good in the in the winter. I, it just never connected for me. I, I really thought I, I, I could have done better. I won six tournaments, you know, I won six ATP2 events, the, the things that if I look back at my career, I would have liked to have done better in, in Grand Slams. I only made one quarter finals in the Australian Open, and I made like 16 in the US Open, last 16 in Wimbledon, and again last 16 in the Australian Open. But, But I thought I was worth more. You know, I could give you a list of because for every player that I, I, I still I think I'm better or you know, I did better with for example Patrick McEnroe, for example. He made semis at the Australian Open. But I think as a single player, a doubles player he was a great doubles player, but as a single player I don't, I don't think he's a semi finalist of against Slam single player. But he did it, you know, and for me that I, I was had such a better, much better singles career than him, but I was not able to do that. Uh, and that's I think has something to do with that coming from a small country, not really believing that I can Nobody directed me on that direction. You know, everybody was just happy. Oh, we have a player from Israel who's top 50. Oh, we have a player from Israel who's top 30. Nobody really t- said, shit, you know, we, we may have a player from Israel maybe he can be top 10 or top 5 or against or Slam champion, you know. And so I think, I think if you want to really do well at slams, you have to direct it from a very young age, especially today. What was it
0: like being on tour in the 80s and, you know, early 90s? Did you like being a pro player? uh sometimes, yeah, sometimes, no,
1: <laughs> you know it's for a tennis player when you win, you can be in the worst place in the on earth, and you will enjoy it, you could love it, you know, you could be uh, somewhere with no t v and a shit hotel or whatever and, and and you you would love it, and if you lose first round, you could be at the rich Carlton in paris and, uh, and you know, and you you will suffer when you it it all has to do for a tennis player, but it's all about winning or losing. And uh, it, it was a lot of reading, you know. At that time, in the 80s and 90s, TV was not... It's not like today, there was no uh, internet. So I read a lot. What was it like being a Jewish player on tour? I have to tell you, when when I played, there was at one time... Do you know that at one time, we were five Jews in the top 20? Do you know that? Can you believe that? <laughs> you know? It was Brad Gilbert, Aaron Krixton, Martin Heiter. Myself, and the fifth one was a really good player that not many people remember, Jay Berger. Of
0: course, Jay Berger. Yeah, of course.
1: And so, 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 so we, at, at that time we we had five guys. You know, we were there were a lot of Jewish players. You know, before me, of course, there was the Israeli players, and Eliel uh, and Howl Solomon and Brian Gottfried and uh, Brian Teacher. And uh, uh Brett Gilbert and uh, uh, Steve Meister, if you know Steve Meister, and uh, you know, there's quite a, a Steve Kulovich, David Schneider, they, they, were, they were quite. And when I played, with, there was Jim Grab, you know, Jim Grab and Larry Scott, it, there were many more Jews in the top 100 than today.
0: Did you experience anti Semitism? You know, Gilad, Gilad Bloom, your friend, he came on my show and he said it was cool. He said that everywhere we went, the Jewish community kind of looked after us we ended up on a lot of private tennis courts uh it was a it was a great experience he's talked that he loved being a pro tennis player
1: yes yes and you know especially in north america you know we had in the u.s and canada in north america the jewish communities are very strong and we always had housing and and uh, supportive of these tennis centers that uh, took care of us and people would show up in matches Till today, even, you know, sometimes, I, not in the States, but, you know, I, I won. My biggest win was in when I won the Indo tournament in, in France, Paris, Bercy, the big Indo tournament that's coming up next week. Uh, somehow I managed to to win yeah, the you tournament. You won
0: Bercy. I mean, that's a great win. That's an incredible, that's, a, that's such a famous tournament.
1: So, so till today, you know, there's a lot of uh, French people that immigrated because of anti-Semitism. A lot of French uh, Jews immigrated to Israel in the last 10 years. So every now and then I still say and they say, "Oh, Amos, I saw you. I, I was there when you played. I saw you in the match. I was at your match there." And in terms of anti-Semitism, I didn't really feel any anywhere that that was an issue. You know, I felt welcome in most places. Some places, of course, they would cheer for their players. You know, but I never felt that. Uh, I I think that the tennis, in terms of of that, is is a good sport because. It's a personal sport, and and the, really the people they like you or they don't like you, regardless of where you come from. It's it's mainly the way you carry yourself on the court. I, you know, I think I had when I did that well, I had the support, and when I didn't do that well, I didn't have that support. You know, but uh, it was uh, it was fun years. You know, tour, I, I would give everything. Go back on the tour right now. You know, as a player it would be it would be great to play again. Your best moment on tour. Best moment? I, I I can't tell you that it's just one. You know, every time you do well and you win, you know, we had some great wins. But I I, I cannot just pick one moment. You know, it's uh, I think if I if 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 I would win like or do better in a slam, that maybe it would be it. You know, it just uh, I cannot tell you just one moment. We had five, six, maybe ten great moments when you win a tournament or, or when you have a big win somewhere. Davis Cup, you know, Davis Cup we had some good moments in Davis Cup, so it's. Uh, it's all nice
0: you beat a lot of the former world number ones none of those is your best win
1: <laughs> i never got when i when i look at my career i never got to the point i said okay Amos, this is it this is the, your goal you achieved your goal and it, it was never enough i always looked forward to and uh, maybe not enjoy the moment enough you know always uh, look what's missing not what what's what i have but what's missing if you don't give me a best moment you got to give me a worst moment come on man a loss, a loss that, that really cost me and hurt me was the uh, match against Yannick Noah at the US Open and I was up two sets to love.
0: And you guys got into a bad fight too. You guys got
1: fined after
0: that match. Well, you were up two sets to love. That's why you guys had a bad fight.
1: I I, I was up two sets to love and I got a little bit unlucky and then a little bit I choked a little bit and that was a big match to go up to the third round in the US Open. That was on center court, a big match to play, you know, with an opening in the draw. And so, or maybe go to the last 16, I think it was. The, to go to the last 16, he, I think he beat Becker next round, the quarterfinals. And so, so you know, that was a match that I should have won. I lost it myself, you know, and, and, and all this attention, this negative attention that we got there. And I, I kind of lost a little bit my control over myself, which I didn't like. And uh, so, so that was a match that took me six months to recover. I
0: heard you and Yannick patched it up. I heard that after that, you guys, uh, you guys sorted it out. Or do you still dislike him?
1: No, I, I never disliked him. You know, it's it's uh, uh, just uh, it's unfortunate. You know what happened during that match? I lost my concentration. I don't want to go into detail. You know, it was not Yannick, but it was somebody in his box that uh, did everything to disturb. You know, to disturb me, but. It's many years ago. It's not uh, doesn't matter. I, anyway, I should have not lost my concentration over that. You know. Wait.
0: So you're telling me that one of Janik's people in his box was giving you was giving it to you. Yes. Got you upset. Who was it? Yes. Who was it?
1: Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't, Come it's on, history. man. <laughs> tell
0: us. The devil's it's, in the it's, details. It's, it's, Who was it?
1: Sister. His sister. But it, it doesn't matter. No, his sister uh, was ripping you. Maybe it's in my head, Craig. I just thought that she she's you know, kind of uh, doing, saying stuff that is a little bit bothering me. And, you know, anyway, I should have just... What was she saying? It wasn't really saying, you know, it's just cheering on the wrong time when you're just about to hit. Yeah, It doesn't matter. Well, listen, we talk about bad
0: etiquette a lot. It's interesting how somebody in the box can get somebody off their game. But,
1: but, but I, I don't know, you know, really. I, I, I'm i telling you, Craig, this is... When I look back at it, The 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 thing is I should have focused... Yeah, you can't make excuses. No, you know, I, I let it. I was all over him in that match. You know, two sets to love, five three serving for the match. You know, oh
0: man, two sets to love, five three serving,
1: serving. That, that, that's you know, I'm saying that was a bad moment.
0: For our listeners, he looks. He looks like it still feel that moment
1: when you look. Always when you look at your career with some regrets. This is the moment that I regret. You know, not. Uh... Uh, not finishing that match, not coming to maybe not having a better result at the US Open at the end.
0: Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10-ball scramble. It's, it's word association. I say it, and you just say what comes in your mind. Are you ready? Yes. Your favorite racket?
1: Uh, head.
0: You play with the head, head prestige?
1: Yes, yes. What size grip? Two. The, the sizes have gone bigger now. It used to be three, yes. How'd you string your racket? Uh, natural gut, eight and a half gauge, Babolat VS.
0: What tension?
1: Uh, between 52 and 56, depends on the conditions.
0: Your favorite player growing up?
1: Jimmy Conos. Your
0: favorite player now? Who do you like now?
1: The only one that's playing now, from now, is Djokovic. I admire his skill. You love Djokovic. I love his skill. His skill is amazing. It, nope. it, it, it just, it's just the way what he can do keeps getting better. It's just amazing.
0: What about on the women's side? Is there anyone that you liked watching as a kid?
1: Uh, I, I used to we used to watch a lot uh, Chris and Martina, you know. And, of course, uh, Chris and Martina uh, was the
0: only two, was they were there every every time there was tennis on. It was Chris and Martina. Do you watch Rabakina play Sabalenka? Are there any players that you think have uh, prodigious I, skill?
1: I I, I think Sabalenka she she plays great. I think some of them, you know, I think I think I think also Ibakina she plays great. I liked uh, Serena Williams. I think she was a great championship. She going to both here in Venus, but but Serena was a great uh champion she had a great serve and a great attitude and you you know i i uh uh, you know some of them they're they're great players now it's it's the the level keeps going up in, in women's tennis in men's tennis it's just so many good players that just the level goes up and up and up
0: are you uh concerned about the health of the wta do you do you concern yourself with the politics do you keep your eye on things
1: I I'm le- I I follow the WTA. I follow less than than the ATP. I'm still you know I'm alumni member at the ATP. I think I think tennis in general is is not an easy product to sell. Uh, you start an event uh, at the beginning of the week. You don't know what you're gonna end up at the end of the week with, and uh, that there's no other sport like this. You know if you have a race car or if it's Formula One or if it's a soccer game or basketball game. Uh, golf is a little bit like that, but it's it's not uh, uh, it's still a different structure. You you know you can watch all the fields still playing. In tennis, you, you, you know you 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 can get stuck, especially in the smaller events with players that that. Uh, I, I think the ATP is not doing enough, or, or or for some reason, and this has been the conversation since I was playing. Even that that the the, the players that are good it's very difficult to market them. You know, there's only three or four megastars, and and then the rest are difficult to market, and that's a problem of the sport, you know. Big entourage or lean and mean? For me personally, I would like lean and mean. You know, for me, too many people uh, could create a distraction, but today everybody seems to have uh, huge entourages.
0: What's your feeling about the way pro tennis looks these days? you still recognize it?
1: I still recognize it, but they have to find a way that guys... Uh, can make more money. The guys, the top 500 guys can make more money. What about
0: um, TUEs, therapeutic, therapeutic use exemptions?
1: <laughs> are you guys? Are you hearing about this, that these guys are popping Adderalls? I'm hearing rumors about a lot of, there's a lot of rumors that you hear about the politics of, of the drug testing and all that, but I don't know. I never had a problem with that. I, you know, I don't even think of that term. You know, from 1994, uh, I was not on the tour, you know, because I was in diamond business and this. And then I came back a little bit on the tour in 2013, 2012, 2013, when, on the ATP and WTA, and to to have that sort of thinking about the drugs and maybe that. And one trainer told me, "No, we have to watch out that they don't give her that." One of the players we're working. It's, it's for me. It's. it's I I'm, I don't even think in these terms, you know. For me, sure. it's something that. So far for me that uh, I just, you know, I just coach and my players play and that's it. No gambling, no drugs, just play tennis. That's it.
0: (laughs) Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the king of the court. If you could be the king of tennis and just make a change in the sport with no aggravation, just a swing of the racket, what would it be?
1: One serve. One serve? Yes. One serve? One serve, yes. One serve. One serve? Yes. I, I would assume people would develop much higher percentage on, on on this one serve, you know, on a bigger serve, and and maybe use it occasionally. But but it, it's it's going to level the playing field a little bit because you know now imagine Diego Schwarzman is playing uh, uh, Riley Pelka, you know, it's just a different sport. Tennis has become a big uh, big people uh, sport, and I don't think it should it should be. I think with one serve, you know, it will be a much uh, much better game.
0: I got to tell you, Amos Manner, you're the first person. I've done 200 of these shows. You are the first That's... person in the in the fifth set to say one serve. Really?
1: Nobody, nobody thought about that? What would people say? What did people say? What would they want to change? I mean, Dan Evans
0: said get rid of medical timeouts. Trey Walkie said they should adjust the net. They should adjust the net for the size of the server. I mean, we've we've had we've heard a ton of different stuff. Equal prize money. you are changing the prize money structure. Has been stuff. So changed the calendar. We hear, but no one has said one
1: serve. That's unbelievable. One serve. One serve. I love one serve. That, imagine that. How much time that would save? that would save for the match? It would save some energy, and and there will be more break probably there will be more breaks and and you you will not see you you know, you know it will not be such a big man's sport and you'd have to move the ball around more it's just this is just unfair that uh, uh Dudi and uh, uh Ivo Karlovic have to say to serve from the same position you know John Isner you know that's it's what i'm it, saying it, it's just yes and i would have left this start from the head side you know You'd
0: start the match with, from the ad side.
1: They, when the service game, the righty would start from the where they would start today, and the lefty would start from the ad side with one serve, of course. And and because you know, sixty seven percent of the important points are played to the ad side, so that's that's why it's a huge advantage for for the lefties. Oh, that's interesting! Wow, wow,
0: that's interesting. Listen, you made me forget that you're in war and that missiles are being sent over your city and you have made me forget you know about what's happening i don't know if that's good or bad but maybe we all need a a break from the news
1: what happens to
0: you next you just keep your eye on everything and just go business as usual put your head down and go to work or what
1: i'm i'm uh uh Waking up, I would probably wake up every hour, check, you know, turn on the phone, see that maybe we missed something, you know. We have this app on the phone from the uh, command, from what they call the uh, civilian command that uh, will give us instructions if there is alarms or whatever and and, uh, check the news. I would check. I, I wake up early anyway, but I would probably wake a couple of times a night just to check that nothing is going on that we are unaware of. And uh, I still, I'm I'm optimistic. Maybe that won't change the situation if nothing will happen. But I feel that too many uh, great powers, you know, uh, everybody's involved now. The U.S. is involved. We say that our new prime minister is Biden, you know, and that the U.S. is involved and uh, uh, Russia is involved and Iran is involved. And now China is sending ships here. So, I think it's a big game now, and and I think uh, uh, with rational thinking, not too much is going to happen. And hopefully, they will be able to solve the the kidnap people and the hostages uh, uh, crisis soon. And hopefully, uh, Hamas has got to go. There is some, there has to be some way way they eliminated ISIS. I think I think uh, uh, Hamas has to go also because I think it's also bad for the Palestinian people themselves. I don't think they have the, the, the interest of, of the Palestinian people at heart. This is what I believe.
0: Are you in favor of a two-state solution?
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Amos Mansdorf, this has been a pleasure. Be safe, be, be tough. And I hope that our paths cross in person one day and you are released. Thank you very much. Thank you, Craig. It was a pleasure. Huge thank you to Amos Mansdorf and thank you to Diadora. Use my code approved in all caps at holibertsports.com for 15% off of all Diadora performance tennis shoes. Megan Fernandez edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro and you are released.